Good morning and welcome to the Institute for Government. Uh, my name is Hannah White. I'm Director of Research here and it's a pleasure to welcome you all here this morning and also a pleasure to welcome our excellent panel uh, to talk this morning about Parliament's role in voting on Brexit, launching our new paper authored by Raphael Hogarth and myself. Um, so, as I say, an excellent panel. Uh, we have George Parker, political editor of the Financial Times, uh, Baroness Smith of Buzzleblum, who's obviously a shadow leader of the House of Lords and shadow spokesperson on Northern Ireland, uh, Dominic Grieve, Conservative MP and uh, uh, former Attorney General, and Raphael Hogarth, who is has sadly not made it onto our backdrop today, but <laughs> I can confirm, <coughs> divides his time uh, between being a research associate here at the Institute and as a leader writer and columnist for the Times. Uh, so how are we going to run this today? We're going to start with a few remarks from Raphael, who's going to present the paper. Uh, then we're going to go to some, uh, some questions. I'll, I'll, I'll put some questions to the panel, and then we'll open it up to the floor for questions. So, Raphael. Thanks. Morning. It's great to see so many people here today to discuss uh, Parliament's role in approving the Brexit deal. Uh, as Hannah said, today we're launching a new paper uh, written by me and Hannah, which explains what the government has to do in order to get its Brexit deal through Parliament and give effect to that deal in domestic law. And this morning, uh, to kick off, I'm just going to set out the task the government faces, some potential risks to the government's timetable, and, and talk about what might happen if it all goes wrong and the government can't get its deal through in the form it wants. So I'm, I'm basically going to be showing you what Theresa May and David Davis see in their worst nightmares. Um, by the autumn of this year, the government hopes to have negotiated two major documents with the European Union. The first is the withdrawal agreement, that's the deal uh, dealing with the rights of UK and EU citizens, uh, the financial settlement, the preservation of the Irish peace process and a soft border in Northern Ireland, and the transition period currently scheduled to run from March 2019 to the end of 2020. The second document is the so-called Framework for a Future Relationship, or Future Framework for short. And that'll be a statement of intent on future UK-EU relations covering trade, security, and probably some other areas of cooperation. And there's, there's still a live debate within government as to how granular and detailed that document is going to be. Parliament could be asked to make four decisions about those deals. In our paper, we set out the unique features of each. The first decision will be on a motion to approve the deals, also referred to by the government as a resolution, which is what it will be if it passes, uh, and referred to, some people, referred to by some people as the, the, the meaningful vote. And this will, in all likelihood, be the moment of real political theatre. The government will table a motion in both Houses of Parliament to approve what it has negotiated. And ministers have, have said that a single motion will cover both the withdrawal agreement and the future framework. We don't yet know what the text of that motion will actually be, but we can look to some relevant precedents. In October 1971, the Heath government asked for Parliament to vote for a motion that this House approves Her Majesty's Government's decision of principle to join the European communities on the basis of the arrangements which have been negotiated. It will probably be something like that. There are four important points to make about this motion. First, it will almost certainly be amendable. More than that, it will probably be possible for Parliament to debate and vote on multiple amendments to the motion. 
So if there's an amendment instructing the government to negotiate a shorter transition period and one instructing the government to negotiate a longer transition and one asking for a second referendum and one asking for a commitment to a customs union and one asking for a commitment to trade on WTO, WTO terms, Parliament could in theory debate and vote on all of them. It will be up to the Speaker or whoever's in the chair what he selects for debate. And something very, very important follows from this. The government has claimed that the vote will be a binary choice between accepting both the withdrawal agreement and the future framework in their entirety and leaving the EU without any deal at all. That would mean no financial settlement, no transition period, uh, possibly no guaranteed rights for citizens. That claim is wrong. The government has an obvious massive political incentive to hype up the chaos that would ensue if Parliament did anything other than wave the deals through. Uh, Ministers are effectively saying to MPs, rubber stamp what we've done in toto or the result could be massive uncertainty. But the facts are messier than that. If parliamentarians object to specific aspects of the withdrawal agreement or the future framework, they will, in all likelihood, be able to express those views by putting conditions on the approval motion by amending it. And and what happened then would depend on on whether the EU27 were willing to discuss those those amendments, whether they were willing to return to the negotiating table, Uh, It would also depend, of course, on the domestic politics, in particular whether this government could survive a defeat on the deal. In our paper, we discuss the implications for the negotiation timetable of various different amendments, uh, one seeking renegotiation of the withdrawal deal, renegotiation of the future framework, second referendum, remain outcome, no deal. Uh, We also discuss the possibility that Parliament could vote down the deal altogether. And this is the second point. Again, the government has claimed that a no vote would amount to a vote for no deal. In reality, the meaning of a no vote would be determined by what Parliament said its no vote meant, what the government interpreted the no vote as meaning, and what the EU27 were prepared for a no vote to mean. There's a danger, of course, that Parliament could vote no, but fail to articulate a clear consensus about what should happen next. So if some MPs vote no because they want to remain, and some because they want to leave with no deal, and some because they want a different deal, nobody would be quite sure what would happen next. So parliamentarians are going to need to think carefully about how best to give voice to any objections they might have to the government's deal. A Faustian pact between, uh, to, to vote no between fervent Remainers on the one hand and ardent no-dealers on the other would not leave the country on a very steady footing. The third thing worth noting about this motion is its legal status. Unlike the European Parliament's vote on the deal, the Westminster Parliament's vote on the motion will not be legally binding. And this means that, in theory, the government could ignore what Parliament says. In practice, it seems unlikely that the government would take that kind of political risk, but it's it's legally possible. And the fourth and final point to make about the motion concerns timing. In our paper, we argue that the government needs to give Parliament enough time to read and digest the agreements before debating them, and then enough time to debate the agreements before voting on them. These are documents of potentially massive Uh, constitutional and economic significance, and ministers shouldn't be tempted to rush them through without scrutiny. So we recommend a bare minimum of two weeks between publishing the deal and debating it, and a starting point of four to five days debate, in line with the amount of time given for budget day debates and the amount of time given to debate the 1971 motion on the UK's accession to the European communities. So let's step out for a moment of David Davis's worst nightmares uh, and suppose suppose the Parliament votes the deal through. 
The Brexit Secretary has told Parliament that in this scenario, the government would then bring forward further legislation, the so-called Withdrawal Agreement and Implementation Bill, or WABE, to implement the withdrawal agreement. And if you want to know why that was a necessary thing to do, an important thing to do, uh, then read our previous paper, Dispute Resolution After Brexit, where we recommended it. Uh, But I'm not going to go into all of that now. This will be the second major decision that Parliament is asked to make about the deals. The WAVE will will, will give effect to the withdrawal agreement in UK law. It'll basically be to the withdrawal agreement what the European Communities Act 1972 was to the EU treaties. So where the withdrawal agreement says that EU law must be enforceable in the UK during the transition, the WAVE will make EU law enforceable in the UK during the transition. And where the withdrawal agreement says that the UK courts must be able to refer citizens' rights cases up to these up to the ECJ, the WAVE will enable the UK courts to do that, and so on. In our paper, we go into a bit more detail about some interesting constitutional challenges thrown up by the WAVE, but but the takeaway point on the bill concerns not what it is, but what it isn't. When parliamentarians scrutinise the WAVE, they are scrutinising a statute. They are not scrutinising a treaty. They'll have to grapple with questions like, uh, what instructions does Parliament need to give the courts in order to enable them to do what the withdrawal deal says in a way that's consistent with our constitution. But it will be difficult for parliamentarians to influence the content of the withdrawal treaty itself in their scrutiny of the WAVE. The government may even have already signed the withdrawal agreement at this point. The text of the withdrawal agreement may not even be incorporated into the WAVE, and the future framework on long-term UK-EU relations will probably not be dealt with in the WAVE at all. So if parliamentarians do want to engage substantively with the content of the withdrawal agreement and future framework, they need to focus their energies on the initial motion. (coughs) Those are the two major decisions Parliament can expect to make on the government's Brexit deal, the motion of approval and the WAVE. There are two more, less often discussed, that are worth drawing attention to. The third possible decision is on ratification. This is a step that comes after signing a treaty, In the words of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, this is the formal act whereby a state establishes, on the international plane, its consent to be bound by a treaty. In the UK, it's the government, not Parliament, that makes the decision to ratify a treaty. But Parliament Parliament can stop the government from ratifying a treaty. If, within 21 days of ministers laying the treaty before Parliament, either the government or the opposition allocates parliamentary time for a debate on that treaty and Parliament passes a motion to the effect that the treaty should not be ratified, then the government is temporarily bound to hold off. It's a pretty weak constraint, but it is a constraint nevertheless. Fourthly and finally, the government has said that it might choose to implement some more technical aspects of the withdrawal agreement, not in the WABE, but in separate secondary legislation. At at present, Clause 9 of the EU Withdrawal Bill, which goes to report stage uh, this week in the Lords, gives the government the power to do that. If that power survives the remaining parliamentary stages for the EU withdrawal bill, and I'm not certain it will, then parliamentarians could be asked to vote on some of that secondary legislation. And that, in short, is the obstacle course that the government needs to navigate in order to get its deal through Parliament and give it effect. Before opening discussion, I just want to raise one more thorny constitutional issue that affects this process. In the past, governments have sometimes tried to win very tight, very important votes by making them matters of confidence. That is, promising to resign and call a general election if the government loses. This, in effect, is a way for prime ministers to tell their backbenchers 
that a vote against the government is a vote against the government's very survival. But as we explain in our paper, this option is no longer open to governments. The Fixed-Term Parliaments Act of 2011 transferred the power to call elections from the government to Parliament. So the Prime Minister can promise that if she loses on the Brexit deal, she'll table a motion in Parliament for a general election. She can promise that if she loses, she will resign. She can even promise that if she loses, the entire government will resign and it will fall to the Queen to ask someone else to form a government. But the automatic link between losing on a vote of no confidence and going to the people has been broken. And that could make it just a little bit harder for the Prime Minister to persuade truculent backbenchers like Dominic Grieve <laughs> to fall into line. Uh, and with that, I'll open the conversation to the panel. And with that, I'll go straight to the, <laughs> to the truculent backbencher. Um, Dominic, what's your assessment of, uh, of, of Raphael's uh, outline of, the, of, the, of, your, of your, the next six months of your life? <laughs> Firstly, I agree with everything in the paper. I mean, it entirely chimes with my own analysis of how the process is going to unfold. And the only other issue, of course, one has to bear in mind, but it's not the end, is that between now and October, we're going to have uh, the return of the withdrawal bill, uh, we've still got the trade bill, and there are issues about the extent to which Parliament might try to use those to channel the government in particular directions, and whether it would, Parliament would be successful or not in doing that. So that may be, in terms of political crises, I can see that the first political crisis may well come, I suppose, in May, June, with a question of, um, is there something in the withdrawal bill put in by the House of Lords, for example, saying that we have to be in a customs union, or the government is required to negotiate something akin to a customs union? So it seems to me that's where crisis number one is likely to arise. Otherwise, it's going to move on to October. I agree entirely that it is the meaningful vote which is the key vote, not the subsequent legislation because whilst it's possible that the whole thing could unravel during the subsequent legislation as Parliament starts looking at the detail, um, I, it seems to me that it is going to be the debate on the government motion approving <coughs> withdrawal, transition and the future deal, which is going to be the key moment. If Parliament doesn't pick it up at that point or approves it at that point, very hard to see how subsequently it's going to play around with it, except in some very small areas of detail. Um, what will happen then? Well, I've no idea. It depends, first of all, on what the deal that part is presented. But what I do agree with completely is that the idea that this is a binary choice between no deal and a deal is plainly wrong, or the deal that is being presented. Um, the amendment, the motion will undoubtedly be amendable. I strongly suspect the Speaker will allow multiple amendments and enable Parliament to vote, you know, five, six, seven, eight votes for the House of Commons at the end. You know, we approve this, but subject to X. We don't approve it and we tell the government to go back. We approve it, we're only prepared to approve it if there's going to be public consultation and a further public vote on whether they want this deal or not. I think all those will be capable of being on the order paper and voted on in order one after another. Um, obviously, Parliamentarians will be under pressure 
the government will say, you know, if we don't get this right, we're going to drop off the edge of the cliff on the 29th of March. And although there is a tiny number of my colleagues at Westminster who seem to think that dropping off cliffs is a very exciting thing to do, um, I don't actually think there are many people left in the House of Commons who think that this is a very good idea. So one has to keep that in mind. But it also applies to the government. I mean, government ministers who used to be quite gung-ho during the referendum that we could leave without a deal uh, seem to have had a bit of a reality check in the intervening period. So, I mean, all this really, it seems to me, um, builds up to a potentially mighty crisis in um, October. Um, how that will pan out and the politics of that I just don't know. You've got the campaign which was started yesterday uh, up in Islington, I think. Probably rather Camden. appropriate. Camden, Camden, in Camden. <laughs> beg your pardon. It was in Camden. Up in Camden, saying that uh, there should be a further public consultation. I happen to be very sympathetic to that uh, because my view is that I think it may be impossible to resolve this issue without a further public consultation because, on the face of it, what we are going to be offering the public in the end of 2016 is on any showing markedly different from what we were debating in the course of the referendum campaign two years ago. And I thought there's an inevitability about that. There's an issue of principle and then there's an issue of detail. That said, whether there's a parliamentary majority for that, I haven't the slightest idea. Thank you. So, as Dominic points out, the, um, what happens in the autumn is going to be set up by what happens in the Lords um, and in the Commons, indeed, in relation to the previous legislation between now and then. We've got the, the withdrawal bill heading into the report stage in the Lords on Wednesday. this week. Um, so, what's your assessment of, uh, of what the Lords is likely to, to be presenting their Commons colleagues with when it, they send the bill back? Um, something different has arrived in the Lords. Um, I think the first thing to note is that this bill is probably the first, this first Brexit bill that isn't about the ideological principle of Brexit, it's about the practicalities of Brexit and how it works in the parliamentary processes of Brexit. So the debate has been somewhat different and we haven't seen the sort of hysteria that we saw um, when we got to Article 50, that for the Lords to even debate this was somehow a constitutional outrage and sure it would be sent to the gallows. So it's been a sort of markedly sort of lower temperature um, debate. I totally agree with Damien that, that um, Dominic, sorry, that the idea that there should be a binary choice is just ridiculous. You know, it's um, my deal or no deal, basically, is what the government, the Prime Minister, has said. And we all know that no deal, there isn't just one option of no deal, there's different kinds of no deal. There could be a no deal that was um, a hostile no deal, or there could be a sort of friendly no deal. Who knows what that? So I think there's been much more certainty. Our approach in the laws, I said two things about our approach in the laws. One, it's been very different um, to the Commons or to other parties, in that we decided very early on this wasn't just going to be about Brexit, in the sense that Brexit ministers are there in the laws to get their legislation through. They didn't really want to look at the wider issues and the implications which we were trying to do. So it's not just been our Brexit team talking to the, the, Lord, the ministers and the Brexit team, it's been our health team, our... Um, justice team, looking at family law issues, looking at transport issues and talking directly to ministers from those departments. And that sort of had a more reasonable debate rather than um, Lord Callaghan's view as I've got to get my bill through and his response initially to so much of you know, the questions that were put were Brexit means Brexit, it's going to go through and that's it. And we've tried to sort of move away from that. So we've had a slightly different um, more conciliatory 
um, forensic approach to the bill. But the key amendment is the one that uh, has already been mentioned, is the amendment on the meaningful votes. And at the end of the day, there has to be a meaningful vote that is genuinely meaningful. To call it a meaningful vote where it's take it or leave it isn't really very meaningful. Um, and you have to have, I think, options. Now, there's the idea that different amendments will come through, but what we're saying in the vote that we're putting forward and um, looking at the amendment, uh, Lord Hannay, who's here today, is one of the signatories on that meaningful vote to lead on that amendment. It's actually given the right of Parliament to make a decision of what comes next. And if there is a deal that is unacceptable to Parliament, Parliament has to decide what route to take. And it seems to me ridiculous at this stage of the game, as the government wants to do, to close off the options um, that could be available. So for us, that is the, the key vote. Um, there's others as well, but that is one of the sort of the fundamental issue is it has to return to Parliament and Parliament should not be presented with take it or leave it um, on a meaningful vote. Um, I think the other thing on timing, it is getting extraordinarily tight for the government and it is crazy isn't it that the government have had the Trades Bill and the Customs Bill and it could be the vote on the Customs Union if it's passed by the Lords in the Withdrawal Bill will go back to the House of Commons while their, bill on, their trade bill and their customs bill have been paused in the House of Commons. Um, so in trying to avoid and not deal with an issue, it's going to be forced on them through this. And it's hard to imagine they could decide to uh, pause the withdrawal bill once it's been through the laws again to put it off. But every time the government puts an issue off and tries to delay an issue, it just sort of makes the timescale even more complicated. Um, in terms of pressure on MPs, I think your issue about the the pressure that could be brought to bear on MPs is really interesting. When the Article 50 bill went through, we were absolutely confident, not in terms of votes, but in terms of support for the two amendments from the Lords, one on the um, rights of EU citizens, um, the other was on the meaningful vote at the end of the process. We know there was a majority for both those issues in the House of Commons, but we didn't get the support in terms of votes. Um, now, I think as time moves on, MPs are going to be less... Um, pliable in some sense about how they're going to vote and the reassurances the government can give gets harder for the government as time runs out. So whereas a year ago, the well, yes, government's got time to negotiate and deal with this, if we get on you know, many more months down the road, it is harder for government to give that reassurance they're going to deal with it because they haven't done so far and shown no indication of being able to. So I think it's a really difficult position for the government. Theresa May could say, vote for me or it's an issue of confidence, and I won't be Prime Minister anymore. I'm not sure how that's going to persuade hordes of her own party necessarily to vote for her. I don't know. So I think that the government has to give a bit on this. They've already shown some indications. I think, you know, having previously said we won't be part of any of the agencies, they've now flagged up the Medicines Agency, Chemicals Agency, Euratom, for example, are all in the play, having ruled those out. So I think there is some potential for movement. Um, but if you ask them what should the government do at this stage to get its bill through, I'd say listen and respond to the debate that's going on, not the ideological logical position that was taken a year ago and not be driven by the hardline Brexiteers who really don't want to have this debate about the practicalities. Thank you. So, George, our politicians have said they've no idea where the uh, majorities are for different... <laughs> 
outcomes here. What's your assessment of uh, who is planning for what and what's, how this is going to play out? Well, first of all, um, thanks, Hannah, thanks, Rafael, for the report and the Institute for Government, because for those of us writing about it every day, actually to have something that focuses our attention on the sequence of events and how the end game of Brexit is going to play out is incredibly helpful. Um, I, I don't know how people here today feel about this, but it seems to me that a lot of the political uh, oomph has gone out of Brexit for the time being, and an eerie calm has descended on the debate. And I was at the European Council in March, where I thought, you know, a month out from there, you'd have assumed we'd be, the summit would be dominated by Brexit. In the end, it was probably the third most important story of the summit. Um, and uh, the fact that the summit passed off fairly calmly, we've got the implementation period agreed in principle, um, means that a lot of the political heat has gone out of the uh, debates. Also, you will notice it started to disappear a bit from newspaper columns as well and, and broadcast. Uh, and editors are starting to say, well, hang on a sec, you know, this is all getting into the realms of agencies and um, mutual recognition mechanisms, isn't it all a bit dull? Um, so, I, to cut a long story short, I think the, the Prime Minister has a breathing space at the moment, um, and there are ministers who are advising her to exploit that. So, we're talking about the withdrawal bill being in the House of Lords uh, this week, um, and I expect that Lords will uh, back an amendment on a customs union. That, as Andrew was saying, will probably come back to the House of Commons probably in May or June, and there'll be a vote then. There's also the famous clark Subri amendments to the Trade and Customs Bills, um, which will come back at around about the same time, but maybe later, because, as we know, Theresa May's already shelved consideration of that bill. But I think there will be a, a moment where the House of Commons will have to make up its mind on the customs uh, union question. Now, my guess is, talking to MPs, I don't know whether Dominic would agree with this, that there is a general view that now is, or the spring is not the time to force the question on the customs union, which I think, by the way, is the most... Uh, significant part of the Brexit puzzle and the most politically dangerous bit for Theresa May. Um, I think there's a general view on the Tory benches that Theresa May should be given time to um, try and negotiate the best possible deal for the country. The local elections are coming up in May, which will again sort of impose some discipline on the party. Um, and I think there's a view, I was speaking to one cabinet minister last week, that maybe actually it's a good moment for her to bring forward some of this troublesome Brexit legislation while the going's good. Um, so I think probably um, Theresa May will make it through to the summer on Brexit without too many heavy, without a defeat on the customs union. But I think then, going to your question, Hannah, about majorities, and when we get to the moment of truth, I think most people agree that the moment of truth will be on the resolution on the final deal. Uh, and Dominic described very brilliantly, I thought, the fact that you could have seven or eight different amendments to the resolution with conditions attached to the parliamentary approval to the deal. I still think the place where there is a parliamentary majority is on the customs union. I think it would be hard to assemble a majority either on the um, staying in the EU, for example, I think the preferred Lib Dem option, staying in the single market. I don't think there's a parliamentary majority for that. A second vote or the first vote on the final deal, as um, people at the electric ballroom in Camden yesterday were talking about. Um, again, I don't think there's a parliamentary majority for that. I don't think there's also a public desire for it either. I think. I'd have taken it a bit more seriously what happened in Camden yesterday if 10,000 people were on the streets of Manchester or Newcastle um, protesting about it, not 1,000 people in a cinema in Camden listening to Patrick Stewart. I, so I'm not entirely sure that the, the public will is there, but the customs union thing is, is the one because 
it helps to, it doesn't completely, but it helps to answer the Northern Ireland question, which we haven't really discussed, which is the big outstanding issue on Brexit, I think. Um, it limits the economic damage of Brexit quite effectively. And uh, were you um, in the mind to try to frustrate the course of Brexit, or even stop it happening altogether, I thought politically it's your best option, because if you force the Prime Minister to keep, to keep Britain in a customs union, you are putting Liam Fox out of a job to, to a certain extent, maybe not completely, but to a certain extent, and you are then challenging the Tory right, the Eurosceptics, on what to do next. And I think that's the really interesting thing about when we're talking about confidence votes and what does the PM do and all the rest of it, because people on Dominic's side of the party will then be able to call the bluff of the Eurosceptics. What are they going to do if Theresa May is required by Parliament to go back and negotiate a customs union? Are they going to bring the House down and risk losing Brexit altogether? I don't think so. I think that they are now in a mindset that they want to get Brexit over the line, that that is their number one priority. So um, I think that is the moment of danger for Theresa May. I think it's the moment of truth. I think the customs union is the thing we should focus on. Um, and I think Theresa May over the next few months will try to find a way of mitigating the potential damage of a loss on the customs union by, I mean, one can imagine a number of various fudges on this, but one which I think is, seems to be sort of gathering some ground is this idea of the customs partnership. I'll stop on this point because I know it gets a bit technical. Jeremy Hayward has in his head this sort of blue sky idea of having a customs partnership where we collect tariffs on behalf of the EU at our external borders and pass them over to Brussels and all the rest of it, based on technology which only exists in Jeremy Hayward's head at the moment. Um, but you could imagine some sort of agreement where we agree to move eventually to this ambitious customs partnership, but unfortunately it could take many years to get the technology up and running, and in the meantime we would stay in a customs union with the EU, and that would be a way of blurring the lines and maybe keeping both sides happy. But, um, but thank you again for the report. It's uh, given plenty of food for thought. Thank you. And so I think I can take from that we all agreed that the meaningful vote is the, is the most meaningful point in this process, and which raises the question of, of, uh, that, that Angela Smith raised of what meaningful, what meaningful means. So, Dominic, what's your view of, of what you need to see from the government when the Commons is asked to vote on the motion? What, what level of information? Um, is a vague statement about the future relationship sufficient? Well, I think that's going to be one of the key issues. I mean, on the face of it, just picking up one or two things that have just been said, because I think it's quite important, we are in a lull period. And, of course, one of the issues of the lull period is that because transition is likely to be the status quo minus any influence, it has the capacity to make people think that nothing really is going to happen on the 29th of March and that, therefore, they shouldn't get agitated about it. Whereas the 29th of March is a very decisive date, because once you're out, you're out. We're not going back in any time soon. Uh, and thereafter, you have all the disadvantages of the trade deal negotiation as an external partner. So uh, the amount of detail that is available for the future trade arrangement a trade agreement is going to be vital in October because otherwise actually we're being asked to leave without any understanding of our destiny and even then the government can't guarantee the trade deal because it's going to have to be agreed by every European uh, Union Parliament plus some regional ones so it's fraught with difficulty I mean for example might Spain sabotage it at a later stage because of Gibraltar and we all know that as a matter of practical politics any attempt to use leverage on Gibraltar will bring any deal with the EU to a complete grinding halt. 
There won't be one. I mean, I, I think people should understand that. I would never support a deal that required a concession to Spain over Gibraltar as a Remainer. I just would not do it. And I don't think you will find a single Conservative willing to do it in Parliament. So that's the extent of the problem that the government has, because how does it in October provide enough reassurance to Parliament that the deal that is being offered is a deal on which it can subsequently deliver? And that's going to be very dependent on the European Union and on the government in its presentation. Um, I find it very difficult. And, you know, I, until we get there, I can't say what I myself would. I mean, it might be that the deal on offer is so extraordinarily good that everybody thinks this is wonderful and signs up to it. But it highlights for me the enormity of the decision that is then going to be made. Um, just picking up on one other point, if I can just go back on one thing, and that's about the customs union and whether it's just going to be parked until October. I'm not so confident that it can be deferred until October because if it comes back starkly to Parliament in the trade bill, but particularly in the withdrawal bill, if that is what the House of Lords puts on. I mean, at the moment, there are tabled amendments to the trade bill, but they haven't been voted on. Um, it's going to be a bit difficult to completely ignore that, and people will have to come along and express a view. I mean, at very best, people will have to be standing up if the Lords have put it in and say, well, I'm prepared to defer to the government at the moment on this. I mean, speaking personally, a customs union is not ideal because I happen to think that Liam Fox, much as I enjoy his company and I've travelled around the world actually in the past with him when he was Defence Secretary, went out to Afghanistan together. But the fact is, I think he's, I'm afraid, on a hiding to nothing. I don't think there are any significant trade deals to be had with third countries that are going to make a significant impact on our well-being compared to the loss of the trade access to the EU. But it's also right to say, and I have to accept this, that to be in a customs union as an external partner is a dependency relationship which is far from ideal. So from my point of view, with the Prime Minister saying, I want a customs arrangement, and what does that actually mean, I don't know, but a difference between a customs arrangement and a customs union may be a matter of limited degree, I personally don't want to give the Prime Minister trouble if she's going to come back with something which is, looks very much like a customs union at the end of the day and sort of preempt that in the next six months. Equally, I don't want to sell the pass. And this highlights the difficulty of the meaningful vote in October. Because come October, if the government starts treating this as a binary choice decision, with all the pressures that go with it on Conservative members of Parliament, I mean, quite apart from the fact, I think it'll rip the Conservative Party apart. So I don't think it's a good strategy. But I will, I will feel a bit of a, you know, a bit of a prune, quite frankly, if I failed to preempt that by trying to steer the government in the right direction by nudging them over a customs union, which I think is very much not perfect, <coughs> but a better choice in our national interest in the intervening period. So, Angela, the Labour Party said that they want a deal which is, has the exact same benefits as, as current 
membership. Actually, it was David Davis that said that, being held to it. David Davis said in the House of Commons he wanted a deal that would deliver the exact same benefits and then went on to talk about other trade deals as well. So it's the government that first flagged up exact same benefits. But then the Prime Minister at Mansion House said it wasn't <laughs> going to be possible to achieve that. Yep. So, so, who, yeah. so how is Labour going to make a decision about whether it can accept a deal, given it said that, well, that, it, that it wants that? From the very beginning, Keir Starmer set out the six tests, and those will be the six tests that will apply um, when it comes. But I think the Customs Union one's a really interesting one. Um, and if it goes through, which I would anticipate it would, in the House of Lords, in the withdrawal bill, um, it'd be, what, 30th next week, uh, two weeks' time, um, it's likely to come up. And it goes back to the House of Commons. And it is this, you know, this, this dilemma, I think, for um, Conservative MPs. It's often, well, the Prime Minister's saying, well, I can deal with this later. And she said, well, we'll talk about a partnership or an arrangement with the customs union. She's also said, no customs union, no single market. And at what point do people blink and say, actually, we have to say here that this is getting very dangerous. We think, and I agree it's not ideal, but we think it is preferable to be in a customs union. And I'm glad that you know, George flagged up Northern Ireland, particularly with the uh, photograph that's here. If the government can come back and say... We can tell you how we're going to resolve the issue with the border of Northern Ireland, um, that we won't have a hard border. We can tell you how we can do it without a customs union. Then I think there would be people who would peel off from that. I haven't yet heard or understood how the government can do that, and no, neither has anybody else. It's one of these things that we can do this, but we can't tell you how. We're going to have some technological arrangement. Um, you know, I think it boils down to the lack of government understanding on Northern Ireland um, since David Cameron's day. But they cannot say how that's going to be done. And I think that will impact on the decision unless the government can say, this is how we'll resolve the issue, that we won't have a hard border in Northern Ireland because we're going to do X, Y and Z. Unless they can do that, when it comes to the um, Lord's Amendment, should it be passed, going back to the House of Commons, and the House of Commons have to vote, that is going to be, I think, a key part of the debate. So I think that does create a dilemma. And then, now the House of Lords traditionally doesn't much like getting engaged in ping-pong, um, because it's just not, you know, we're an unelected House and you recognise that. But it will depend on the size of the majority and where we see the debate and the movement in the House of Commons on this issue. So, and I think we're in uncharted territory politically and I think your paper really shows that up as well of not really knowing what comes next when we get to the meaningful votes one of the interesting parts about how the government flags this up as a motion and our amendment that comes up in the uh, laws will be slightly different it would be a resolution of the House of Commons but a motion in the House of Lords otherwise if you have the equal um, a motion in both houses you give the Lords a veto we're not seeking a veto um, on this at all but the more the information, and I think you know, you've, you've sort of hit the head on this, the more information that's in the resolution, the more opportunity it is to amend it. But also, the lack, there's less information in the resolution to the Commons. People want to put things in to sort of create barriers um, for the Prime Minister. So I think both of these issues are extraordinarily difficult for the government. I think it's easy for us. We will vote, obviously, um, to remain the customs union. And the meaningful vote, we've put down a motion that I think covers off the issues that we're concerned about, that it keeps everything in play and makes it a decision for Parliament to take, not a decision for the executive. 
Okay, I think on that note we will open it up for the floor. Um, I'll take questions in groups of three. And my colleagues have roving mics to bring to you all. Start with break. Tom Brake, uh, the Liberal Democrat Brexit spokesman in the Commons. Uh, a question for, for Dominic. If the, if the motion is not uh, legally binding, given the attitude the government adopts to, for instance, backbench business debates, opposition motions, and some might argue the decision over Syria, do you think there's any prospect that uh, they might lose uh, some of those votes and decide to proceed anyway? Another question? I'm afraid my question is for Dominic as well. Uh, John Pete from The Economist. Um, can you and can Parliament demand an economic forecast or what one might call a detailed <coughs> impact assessment um, before you uh, are asked to vote on the deal? Uh, Mark Boliat was from the City of London. Um, I just point out that business is now assuming there will be a hard Brexit in May 2019. Certainly financial institutions have to because nothing is guaranteed and the cost to business is now very substantial the longer that any decision is taken and I wonder if this is weighing on the minds of parliamentarians. Dominic, I'm afraid there's all come to you. I have to say, Tom, I think, I think it would be extraordinary for the government not to ignore the resolutions of Parliament. It's, I think it's impossible. It would be... I mean, if, if that were to happen and the government were to turn around and say, well, it's not legally binding and therefore we're just going to ignore it, um, then we would be in the most amazing political crisis. I, I, just can't, I just can't see that happening. I mean, bear in mind, as you and I both know, uh, the, the reality is that Parliament, even a motion of no confidence in the government is not legally binding. It's just a matter of convention that if governments lose con no confidence motions, they resign. Um, the only way, only power Parliament actually has, the House of Commons has, is withholding supply. Um, but we would, we would have turned our constitution on its head. No, I don't, I really, I don't see that as being uh, likely to happen. Should we have a detailed um, assessment? Yes, I think we should. And I think it's something that we should be asking for with enough time to consider it. I mean, in a sense, we've already seen some, some assessments. I'm not sure I've entirely described them as detailed, uh, but um, they're enough to make one want a more detailed assessment. So I think it would be nice to have the government's thinking as to what the deal is likely to offer the United Kingdom in future on the government's, um, and I think the government may well feel constrained to publish that. Um, Mark's comment, I think, is rather important. I'm not sure it's registered at Westminster the extent to which people are pessimistic about there being a deal, uh, or at least anticipating the, the, the risk of dropping off the edge. Uh, you see, there's been... The council in March was very important for the Prime Minister. In one way, I, I congratulate her on it. But it did create this sort of atmosphere. I mean, I had one colleague who's a junior minister, he shall remain absolutely nameless, um, uh, who I know to be, he campaigned very hard for Remain. And over tea, two days after the, the council, he said, he smiled at me and he said, oh, thank goodness, I think we're on the home stretch now. <laughs> and I said, A. <laughs> what do you mean? Oh, well, he said, you know, everything's going to be all right. We're going to sort this out. Of course, Brexit's less than ideal, but, you know, we'll, we're going to get that. I said, we haven't even started. Um, uh, yeah, and the real key is going to be March 2019 to December 2020. 
And predicting how that is going to work out, I'm much, I'm much more um, cynical, pessimistic, I don't know what the right word is, but I mean, obviously I think the EU will try to deliver on any deal it offers us, the outline, but the difference between the outline and the detail is going to be very potentially considerable, and as I say, the potential for derailment is there. So yes, I don't think that message has yet got home. The truth, I'm afraid, is that until there are signs and news of businesses setting up their, you know, actually shifting people and the changes coming about, which has only been a tiny trickle at the moment, that message isn't, I think, going to register at Westminster. George, do you want to go? Well, just to speak on Mark's point, I think Dominic's exactly right. I was speaking to a minister last week who was saying business is calm about this, contingency plans have been made, um, the implementation period has been factored in now. Um, people assume that's going to happen, even though, as you say, it's not legally watertight. But there is a general view in government, maybe a complacent view, that actually business is over the hump on this. And um, that, I mean, I, I remember immediately after the Brexit vote in 2016, I thought that, especially at the FT, we would be writing about the City of London and Brexit on a daily basis. And we haven't been. And I think there's two reasons for that. One is maybe it's because the City of London uh, is more adaptable. Well, we always knew it was adaptable, right? But has the City of London adapted already? Has it made, done the necessary contingency planning? Um, the other thing is that the job losses that many people have predicted haven't materialised yet, and I know we haven't left yet. But nevertheless, I think if the City of London in particular is still worried about the consequences of what's about to happen, and given that the fact that the financial services element of the Brexit agreement is still completely up in the air and we have no idea how that's going to end up, then probably the City of London, I think, needs to start raising its voice again. Rafael, did you just want to come in? Yes, I just, in terms of where expectations are, I just wanted to make one point about timing because we've spoken a lot about the meaningful vote in October uh, and what we're expecting by the end of this year. But in terms of the meaningful vote being in October, I would say don't count on it or don't bet your life on it. People first started talking about October as uh, the moment for the meaningful vote uh, back near the start of the negotiation when the base case was sufficient progress to move on to phase two of negotiations uh, in October last year. That was pushed to uh, December. Uh, conversations about the future relationship have also got going more slowly uh, than people anticipated. They're just starting to get going in Brussels this week. And I think there's a pretty substantial chance, given that negotiations have slipped before, that they will slip again. Uh, and we could see the meaningful vote happening uh, later than October this year, or if things get really close to the wire, uh, even next year. And I think that people, including businesses, need to be prepared for for that, and I think there, there could be potentially some quite difficult parliamentary wrangling towards the end of this year if parliamentarians get to a point where they, they were promised a meaningful vote and they're expecting one, uh, and they don't get one, and they may choose to force one by other means. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, work with I entirely agree with you on that. The European Union is quite keen not to take decisions at October councils because people are just returning from their holidays and in our, in our, in our case just coming back from party conferences um, and there's a real tendency to push decisions back to the end of year council which is always seen as a backstop to decision, hard decisions have to be taken and given the fact the EU has an interest in pushing us further towards the wire in terms of the negotiation I wouldn't be at all surprised if the final package is agreed in December rather than October. 
give us a couple of points. I think on economic forecasts, I think it'd be absolutely essential, but the government hasn't been very willing to share its assessments so far. In fact, they've been you know, sort of dragging and screaming to publish what they have, and when they've been published, they've not been found very illuminating. So I think there's a huge issue there about the, the information that government has, information government's providing, the kind of analyses that have been undertaken. Um, on the, it's interesting, you know, you spoke about it, George, about being eerily quiet. So I think that's a little bit from business. I find it extraordinary that people are so complacent about the impact on business. And it seems to me, any meetings we have in the House of Lords, perhaps there's more um, people sort of connecting in and talking to business or we're being lobbied more, I don't know. But the more you look at this, the more alarming it becomes. And I'm one of those now. Obviously, I voted for Remain. I campaigned for Remain. I went into the depths of the South Coast and did public meetings on Remain and got you know, beaten up for my uh, efforts, if I'm honest. But some of those people now come in saying, well, actually, my business will be affected by X, Y, and Z. I was talking to somebody, a publisher, who has business across the EU, and even on the current agreement for British citizens, they will have problems with their UK staff who don't have onward movement rights under the government. That is a huge problem for them in employing UK staff and having UK base. So those things aren't being come out. I think there is a role for business here of being louder. You know, George may be comfortable being eerily quiet. You know, it's a bit light on journalists at the moment. Get the information out, but get it to parliamentarians. Um, because personally, you know, I say although I was very active in the main campaign, as time goes on, it gets more alarming because the consequences, many of the, you know, no one thought about Gibraltar at the time. Um, I think I was one of the first to actually raise Gibraltar in Parliament because talking to the Gibraltar government, how alarmed they are. Northern Ireland, I don't remember Northern Ireland being flagged up during the referendum campaign. And there are so many other issues affecting businesses, regulatory alignments, for example. Um, I don't think I heard those words before um, we started debating it in Parliament. It certainly wasn't evident during the um, campaign. So I think business has got to be um, very loud. And I think one of the things would be helpful is to say what the implications are for the preparations being made by business for a hard Brexit. What does that mean in practice for jobs and economy in the UK? Okay, some more questions. Uh, Alistair Smith, University of Sussex. Question primarily for Raphael, I think. Uh, the outline of your report says on, on, that's been laid around says that the withdrawal agreement will outline a backstop on the economic governance of Northern Ireland. Implication being that the solution to the Northern Ireland problem will not have been properly pinned down then. How can Parliament have a meaningful vote on Brexit if it doesn't know that the solution to Northern Ireland is staying in the customs union or having it bordered in the Irish Sea or what it is? How, surely, surely Northern Ireland has to be pinned down before a meaningful vote. Hi, good morning. Uh, Tim DeWitt, Dutch journalist. Um, I have a question about uh, the possi possibility of an amendment on the second referendum. If that uh, amendment would get a majority, should that referendum then automatically be held before the 29th of March? Or would that mean that the 29th of, or the, the date of leaving would be extended? I'm a gentleman just in front of you. 
I suppose it's a follow-up question, really, in, in that, to the yeah. previous gentleman, Alex Murdoch, uh, Emeritus Professor, and that is that uh, 29th of March, in effect, creates the default. And so if, uh, if there is, a, shall we say, a ongoing amendments, discussions, delays, then in effect the 29th of March becomes the default. Okay, Raphael, do you want to kick off? Sure. Uh, so on the question about Northern Ireland, um, as many in the room probably know, what was agreed in December was a kind of three-part uh, settlement on how to handle the uh, Northern Irish issue. So uh, the two sides will, well, Britain, I think, uh, is supposed to come forward with uh, ways to resolve the island issue as part of the future relationship. If it can't do that, it'll come forward with specific solutions for Northern Ireland. Uh, and if it can't do that, then uh, there will be uh, some form of backstop which involves Northern Ireland aligning with those rules of the single market and customs union necessary to preserve North-South cooperation, the all-island economy and a soft border. Um, uh, you can tell I've read it a few times. Um, <laughs> um, so th what the withdrawal agreement will do uh, is uh, lock in option C, uh, the backstop uh, setting out what will happen uh, if conversations on the future relationship and specific solutions for Northern Ireland don't result in a solution satisfactory to all sides on how to preserve a soft border. Uh, ultimately, it's up to parliamentarians whether they consider uh, that knowing the terms of the backstop but not knowing in full detail the terms of option, ba option A or option B, i.e. Uh, the ideal <coughs> terms on which an Irish border would be, uh, a soft Irish border would be maintained, uh, constitutes a, a meaningful vote or not. I also just want to make a quick point about the second referendum because I think that's very important, something that we discuss in the paper. There would be pretty challenging time constraints on a second referendum if we wanted to get it done before March 2019, particularly if there were any delay in the negotiation timetable. Uh, so there are some uh, statutory constraints on how long referenda take. There, there's guidance about how long the Electoral Commission uh, needs to be given to report to Parliament on whether uh, the referendum question is comprehensible and sensible. Uh, there's guidance in uh, legislation about uh, how long the referendum campaign itself uh, needs to be. I think it, in total you're looking at between sort of 20 and 30 weeks set out in, in statute, although the detail is in the report. Parliament could abridge any of that in theory. You know, Parliament could say, no, this time we want to do it quicker. Um, and some referenda abroad have been held... Uh, incredibly quickly. There have been some referenda that have been, uh, where, where you've moved from decision to go to the people to polling day in, in two weeks. Uh, but that poses considerable risks uh, in terms of the administration of the referendum, how effectively it's administrated, the quality of the question, uh, the quality of the debate, and the interaction between campaigners and the public, and ultimately, therefore, the perceived legitimacy of the result, particularly if it's close, and the perceived legitimacy of UK democracy in general. Uh, so I think that particularly if negotiations were slipping and there were appetite for a new referendum, there would have to be quite a difficult conversation about the trade-offs associated with timetabling that. Just to go back to the Northern Irish question, Angela. So 
as developed by Raphael there, if there's detail about the backstop but not detail about options A and B in with the withdrawal agreement, is that sufficient information to have a meaningful vote? Oh, it's hard to know that the December agreement, which put the backstop there, has been clarified by the government now twice, differently each time. So it gets hard to know. First of all, the backstop was regulatory alignment, um, and then say, well, what we mean by this, and then say, well, we didn't mean that, we mean this. I think the government's been slightly confused about the December agreements. Um, what we've tried to put into our amendment on Northern Ireland is to look wider about the Good Friday agreements as um, affected by the 1998 Northern Ireland Act. But it's not just about the border. It's also about human rights issues in Northern Ireland and the, imp the implementation of the whole Good Friday agreement. So I think the government needs to be absolutely clear. I think it is a stumbling block in the whole negotiations, the lack of planning, the lack of thought um, uh, around the whole Northern Ireland issue. There has never been a time when the Republic of Ireland and the UK haven't been in the EU together or out of the EU together. So we're entering uncharted territory. And if you look at the border, um, just to look at you know, how it crisscrosses, and everyone saw um, Patrick Kilty's programme uh, last week for last. I thought, you know, and he <coughs> highlighted some of these issues in that. So I think it is a stumbling block. I think it's a huge block for the government not to resolve Northern Ireland and go to try to get to a meaningful vote without understanding what is involved. So yes, I do think it's an enormous problem. You know, I can't overstate that. Um, just on the second referendum, I think the language of this has changed. It was, first of all, people calling for a second referendum, and now it's about a referendum on the withdrawal amendment, another amendment. I have to say, I personally would have to be forced to persuade that a referendum is the good way to um, decide complicated decisions ever again. And I've been through, uh, if we look back, perhaps the, the best ever was Howard Wilson, who knew exactly what he was doing in 1975 when he called for a referendum, basically, to stay in or, can, or do you want to leave? But you know, the decision had already been taken. Everyone knew the impact of that. And subsequently, I think there's been only three national referendum in that time, and none of them have actually covered us in glory. Um, so it is a difficult one, and I, th I think all the problems Raphael has said. Having said that, I just don't think Parliament should close off any options to itself at the moment. And the whole point of our Meaningful Vote Amendment that's coming up, saying the Lords, hop back to this, is that it will be open to Parliament to make that decision at the time. But it's not something I'm immediately attracted to, but don't close off options at this stage. Dominic. Northern Ireland, I agree that there is a risk that by the autumn it will not be clear how the Northern Ireland issue is going to be resolved. Of course, the government's position, and I think it's pretty clear, is the government, I think, acknowledges that there is a problem with Northern Ireland, but thinks that it is being exaggerated within the EU and by the Irish government for purposes of leverage over keeping us in a customs union. And I, I, I think what's got to be we can be sensible about this. I think there's obviously going to be a degree of exploitation on, bo on both sides about this issue, either to minimise it or to maximise it. What is quite, and I think the government also thinks, that if it can get itself into a deal with an understanding that the detail of how the hard border is to be avoided will be part of the trade negotiations, then of course at that point the leverage switches to the United Kingdom because the United Kingdom is then in a position to say, well, you've got to give us a particularly good deal because that will minimise the border issue for the future trade deal. Um, 
I must say, I think that if, unless there is some clarity by October, I think it will be quite a, very, a big issue in the course of the debate that takes place in Parliament. But I've never thought that this was an easy matter to resolve, uh, because unless we stay in the European Union in its entirety, the, border is, the nature of the border is going to change. But it's wrong to say that there is no border there at the moment. There is, actually, and in some ways there are controls at times on that border. So I think we've just got to keep that that's entirely in mind, but it's clearly a matter of anxiety, certainly for me, and one of the issues around the customs union. On the second referendum, or another referendum of consultation, rather than perhaps the second referendum seems to be the expression that is being used frequently. Um, the EU is very respectful of countries' constitutional orders. Every EU interlocutor that I have raised this with thinks that we would get an Article 50 extension if we needed it to hold a further public consultation to approve a deal. There is a problem over the EU parliamentary elections, but I suspect that may not be insurmountable. And basically, the EU doesn't want the UK voting to send MEPs to the EU Parliament who may only be there for a few weeks and might be highly disruptive, because they're quite worried about disruptive MEPs coming from Poland and Hungary enough as it is without having a further dose of disruptive MEPs as they would see it from here. Uh, and it would be a bit odd for us to be voting in parliamentary elections for the EU if we're about to go. Um, so there are problems with it, but I've always been of the view that ultimately if we need an extension for a legitimate reason of concluding either the constitutional process of leaving or a public consultation uh, with the UK electorate, that we would probably get the right to do that. It's not certain, like anything else, but I think we would probably get it. Otherwise, I agree. I think the timetable is going to be hideously uh, constrained. Just about the referendum again, is, is it legally binding? Because technically, referenda is not legally binding on well, the government. But then every, every government says, well, you decide. We're giving you the vote. You decide on well, something. It's I, I, I think it's difficult. I think we, we could do either. But mm. I mean, the, 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 difficulty, the difficulty with the 2016 referendum is it clearly was an indicative referendum because of the nature of the question mm. that was being asked. If one's saying to people, here is the deal, the terms on which we're leaving and a future trade negotiating agreement, is this what you want? Then you could make it binding to the extent that if you say that the electorate says yes, uh, we would immediately implement it. Uh, and Parliament could, I mean, obviously Parliament could change its mind because Parliament is sovereign. But just as we did with the alternative vote, you could, you could have a mechanism in it which gives the government authority to ratify, conclude and go immediately afterwards without any further parliamentary intervention. Dr. Glass, very quick, do you think there's anything close to a parliamentary majority for a consultative second referendum? It seems unlikely to me. Well, at the moment, frankly, I don't think there, there is. And indeed, I mean, one has to face up to the fact that, uh, you know, looking around the country, the, the general impression I get is of uh, weariness with the entire Brexit process. People, uh, leavers say, why aren't we out already? I get very angry things. Actually attacking the Prime Minister, who's in her sense doing her best to you know, get through this Gordian knot, and saying, why aren't we out? And complaining that their businesses are being endangered by the uncertainties mm. around it, which is a bit bizarre, but there we are. 
because they're going to have plenty of uncertainty <laughs> afterwards. Um, and then I get Remainers who just say, oh, this is such a nightmare. You know, why can't we bring it to an end? But I come back to the problem. Maybe in October, the deal looks so good, so sensible, that everybody in Parliament rallies round it and says, well, it may not be exactly what I wanted, but frankly, it looks as good as we're going to get, and it's minimal change, and we've got this access into the markets, and it looks as if it's going to be all right. But if it isn't, and we're going through this process, which Angela and I, everybody's been discussing, with the possibility of the government being defeated, where are we going? I mean, I acknowledge that there might be some scope for the government to go back and negotiate in Brussels <coughs> on issues where Parliament says we don't like this or we don't like that, although the time frame is going to be very close. But it seems to me that if you end up with an impasse with a government which presents a deal to Parliament, which Parliament doesn't like and doesn't want to approve, you've got a choice. Choice one is a general election, which I suspect is what Jeremy Corbyn is angling for. Choice two is a further public consultation, because you know, Remainer that I may be, I mean, I'm also a Democrat, and I mean, I acknowledge that if the electorate turn around and say, actually, we think this is a pretty good deal and we want it, that's the end. No, this, this debate will have run its course. And all I can say is that, as a parliamentarian, I think I would sleep sounder in my bed at night from the sense that we have looked at this and exhausted it, and you know, my view has been disagreed with, but on a basis which is rational, whereas I always look back to the 2016 referendum and think that we were discussing a whole series of abstract topics. So I actually think it would probably bring this issue to an end. What happens if the public rejects the deal? Well, that, that raises, <laughs> well, that raises two key issues, doesn't it? Let, let, we, have, we, have to, we have to be realistic. One, it might be an indication that they've changed their mind and they want us to stay in. And of course, the other one is that they want to follow Philip Davis and, and leave with absolutely no deal at all. And that does raise some complexities. But I simply come back to my original question, which is, it's going to be complicated enough as it is because there is no easy way out of the fact that what is coming down the track in October is on the face of it, in detail, significantly different from the sort of abstract discussion we were having two years ago. How do we sensibly resolve that with minimum division? And I don't know, I mean, people got alternative answers. Uh, I'm, please feed them in, but it doesn't seem to me there is an easy way out of this. And I don't see any sign at the moment of there being a broad consensus emerging which will carry us through the autumn. But it might be that such a thing will develop. But I don't at the moment see it. Just one complication on that, though, isn't it, with the second referendum, is we're talking about Parliament should not have a binary choice, a take it or leave it vote. And yet if we offer a referendum, people, we're offering a binary choice. And I think the coalition you described, you could get people saying, yes, we want this. If there's a, a no, we don't want that deal, it will be a coalition, a coalition of chaos even, um, a coalition from different groups for different reasons. But you're going to get chaos anyway <laughs> if, if, if the government can't get mm. its deal through Parliament. Yeah. Uh, 
I mean, it's true that the Prime Minister might resign, uh, the government might resign collectively, which might eventually precipitate a general election, but I, if I may just sort of gently pass a message back to the Labour front bench, if they think that suddenly Conservatives are going to support a motion of no confidence against their own government, I think that they're, they're in a, a fantasy world. It won't happen. But that's not what this is about. Let's know, that's, that's a sort of the tactic to try and get people behind the Prime Minister. What this is about is trying to make sense of something that was ill thought out, yeah. ill thought through, and we're now struggling to try and make sense of it when it is extraordinarily difficult. Um, so it isn't about whether I have a general well, election or it's whether can the government get this legislation through in any meaningful way that doesn't totally damage the economy and have they thought through well, these I, issues? I, I, I agree with all that, yeah. but, but, but Andrew, what's going to happen? If we have votes in Parliament where, let, let's just assume for one moment, come October, there are a number of areas where the government is defeated in the House of Commons because amendments are tabled saying we don't like this, we don't like that. Um, the government could go back to Brussels and renegotiate, and that might solve the problem. But I have to say, I mean, I should be very interested about Labour's standpoint on this, because my just gentle sense, and in the House of Lords you're all very rational and reasonable, but my gentle sense is that Labour is pretty intent that, un I mean, Labour set a number of criteria that the government has got to meet if it is to support the deal. And on the face of it, I think those criteria are rather unlikely to be met because they are the equivalent of being able to stay in the customs union in a single market as if we'd never left. Now, if that's the case, you are going to be voting in the House of Commons in October against this deal in its entirety. You may well table amendments, you may well support amendments, but I suspect you will just be rejecting it. So, if you are successful in doing that, obviously it depends then on Conservative MPs like me, but you know, if you're successful in that, um, you've got your political crisis and there isn't any easy way out of it, is there? So there's got to be some way out because you know, we have to pay some regard to the good governance of this country. I go to church on a Sunday to pray mm. for quiet government, but we're not exactly delivering yeah. it, are we? <laughs> Those tests aren't new, and it's the government's responsibility to come up with a deal and have the discussions and the negotiations with us and with others. Um, and I just think the government has really abdicated responsibility so much in this area because it hasn't been able to, even the Northern Ireland question, which should have been a relatively easy one to resolve. On Gibraltar, where is the government going on Gibraltar? I don't know. Can I just say one thing, Helen, the government is working on the assumption mm. that the Labour Party will vote against this deal. Yeah whatever mm. the deal is, for obvious reasons <laughs> be rehearsing. And therefore, they will have to come up with a deal which will satisfy both sides of the Conservative oh. argument. So who knows, maybe they will come up with the dream scenario that <laughs> an unlikely... It could be the happiest man in the world. <laughs> but, but, that is, um, but that does suggest that you know, Theresa May will spend the summer trying to think of compromises which will at least attempt to bridge this huge gulf in the Tory party. OK, I think we've got time for one or two final questions. Can we come? Yeah. Hi, thank you. Um, Joanna Cherry, SNP spokesperson on justice and home affairs and member of the Select Committee on Exiting the European Union. Hannah, uh, you've previously said that um, if the UK government proceeded with the withdrawal bill, for example, in the face of uh, withheld consent by the devolved legislatures, that would 
precipitate a constitutional crisis. I mean, one could argue we're in the middle of a constitutional crisis already at the moment. But it clearly looks like that's what's going to happen now. And we also have the prospect later this week of the UK government going to the Supreme Court or starting a process of going to the Supreme Court to challenge the legality of the continuity bills that have been passed by significant majority, cross-party majority, in the Scottish and Welsh parliaments. I just wondered what, what you think about where we are now in relation to the devolved legislatures, and I'd be very interested on the, in the other panellists' comments as well. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Robert? Just one last one here. Robert Hazel, I'm an associate here at the IFG. I hesitate to return to Northern Ireland, but it's slightly surreal. We've had a big discussion about it without anyone mentioning the DUP. And if the numbers are very tight, as they quite likely will be in the various votes on amendments to the resolution in October, could George and Dominic comment on the role of the DUP and what part they might play? Okay, so thank you for the, the question. As, a, as you say, the Institute has, has spoken about this sort of impending... Um, uh, problem which is presenting itself in relation to you know what, what the government is is going to do is it going to um, uh, decide that it's going to proceed in the face of you know withheld consent from the from the uh, devolved legislatures or, or or what is going to happen and we've done quite a lot of thinking here about how um, uh, in an ideal world um, the sort of the, the process for uh, handling uh, issues which are devolved but are currently dealt with in the EU when they come back, um, uh, how that can be done in the most um, effective way and published a report on it last week, in fact. Um, I think, you know, I mean, uh, to, to add to the confusion, but, you know, the, the, the answer is we, we just don't know where we're at in that at the moment. We've got to wait and see what, what happens with the continuity bills um, and, and, and how those are, are dealt with. Um, and we've, we've got to see what, um, what the government's appetite is um, for, for, for pushing ahead if, if, we, if um, consent continues to be withheld. Um, but I'm afraid we don't have them. any magic insight into that here at the Institute, but perhaps our panellists do. <laughs> I, I'm not sure I do have a magical insight. I mean, I, the continuity bills... Um, General, forgive me for disagreeing. I, I, I can see why the government is challenging them, and I have I have uh, doubts about whether they are within varies of the of the Scottish Parliament. Um, but as for the wider issue about um, uh, about the way in whether we get through this with a sual consent motion, um, you know, that's a, a much more problematical issue and is a real constitutional issue for the government, which it cannot ignore. Um, I think the government's doing what it can to try to, to get to the right place uh, from what I've been seen and been told, but it, it raises a, a difficult matter. Um, on the other one, which was about the DUP, I, I, the DUP, on the face of it, yes, they could play a, a key role if they were to withdraw support from the government uh, at a key moment of the, uh, of the end of the Brexit process, then that would deprive the government of its majority immediately. Um, whether that's likely to happen, uh, I, I, I just don't know. I mean, with a DUP, it's never entirely predictable what's going to come up next. Uh, I mean, on the face of it, uh, as they seem to be reasonably supportive of um, 
uh, Brexit, uh, quite a hard Brexit, uh, albeit that they've said some rather contradictory things about the Northern Ireland border, so one's not quite sure what it is that they want out of that aspect of it. Um, I would normally expect them to stick with the government, uh, but that's just my... I mean, the government would have had to have fouled up the preparation leading up to October if they're going to end up in October without the DUP support. Mm. Yeah, well, I, mean, I, I agree with Dominic. Being what the DUP are going to do on any given issue is sometimes tricky, but we know they're in favour of Brexit generally. We know they're against having a border in the Irish Sea. We know they're in favour of having relatively free trade or as free trade as possible across the border. And they're concerned about excessive alignment between the Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland economies. So those are all the elements, but I think I agree with Dominic. In the end, the government is looking for their support and will do what is necessary, including, I suspect, pushing a bit more money over the Irish Sea to, to Northern Ireland to make sure that, that they're on side at the, at the end of the day. But reading the DUP this far out is almost impossible. I would agree with both of those. It's interesting that the DUP, there are three DUP peers, and previously they voted with the government from time to time and against the government. Since the election, since the deal, they have not once voted against the government. Um, and I think that's a significant interest if we get any new DUP peers in the list that we're all anticipating of new peers, which would be totally unjustified. So I think it's extraordinary to think they would not continue to support the government almost under any circumstances. Um, but, you know, they've not been helpful to the Prime Minister in the whole debate anyway. If you think when Prime Minister goes over to Brussels to announce an agreement has been reached and she has to rush back, have a few more conversations with Arlene Foster before she's able to do so. It really is a case of the tail wagging the dog sometimes. But I do think they will do whatever the government requires them to do. OK, well, on that note, I think we'll draw things to a close. Can I ask you to join me in thanking our panellists for a very interesting discussion? <laughs>